Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 18th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today we have a live program. Melissa and I have made a short road trip. We will be home Sunday morning. Tonight we're going to present a paper written in 2012 by Clifton Emmerheiser. It was titled Diverse Seed Defiles Families. We have added to that title, or how angels become chained in darkness. This evening, I am going to present this paper by Clifton Emmerheiser, Diverse Seed Defiles Families, which he had first written in February of 2012. Clifton had originally added a notice to the title, which indicated that this would be part one of a series, and that is how it is published at his website. But he never sent me a second part. He never really elaborated on the subject which is suggested by the title, and I have no further evidence that he attempted to do so among any of his papers. This is it. He called it part one, and it's part one of one. Clifton was often diverted from subjects to address things which he felt were more important or at least more urgent and often never got back to them. He did create an abbreviated, an abbreviated version of this paper that could serve as a one-page handout. He did that on purpose. He actually created, um, Perhaps a half dozen of those in the last year or two of his writing, they're available on his website. You could print it out on one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, one of several essays that he did in that matter, hoping that people would do that and use them as handouts. To that one-page handout, in that format, Clifton added a couple of ideas to this topic and made some minor clarifications of what he had written here. Presenting this this evening, we shall include Clifton's clarifications and those new additions at the end of this expanded version of his paper. This paper discusses an important biblical concept which is found only in the meanings of words in the original Hebrew language of Scripture. But which is not explicitly spelled out in the language of Scripture itself. However, I am convinced, as Clifton had also pointed out here, that an understanding of this topic serves to clarify certain remarks made by the apostles where Peter and Jude had both referred to angels chained in darkness. Here Clifton expresses the realization that certain references to seed or kind in scripture 
actually have a deeper meaning than the English or Greek translations suggest. Until this time, neither Clifton nor I had taken the time to elaborate outside of this paper on the importance of this realization in relation to how it substantiates other aspects of our work. Soon I will work on that. But the fact that Clifton certainly realized the implications shall be fully evident as we proceed with his discussion of a certain Hebrew word for seed, which appears in just a couple of passages in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. Because Clifton's terse manner of writing is sometimes difficult to understand, as he was endeavoring to squeeze these essays into two sides of a single legal size sheet of paper to make a pamphlet out of them. I will also make many emendations to his text, which I will place in brackets in the notes here, which will be published along with this podcast, aside from my adding my own notes and comments in additional paragraphs. Diverse seed defiles families. Deuteronomy 22.9 and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19 by Clifton Emmeheiser. Clifton begins, We are about to address the Bible's most serious offense. Everywhere in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for seed, sperm, or descendant, or in other words, offspring, is Zerah, Strong's number 2233, except in Leviticus 19, verse 19, and Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, where the word found is Strong's number 3610. Kilayim is used for seeds, diverse kind, mingled seed, and mingled. It appears once where it is translated seeds in Deuteronomy 22.9, and three times in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19, where it is once Diverse kind, again, mingled seed, and again, simply mingled, as it is translated in the King James Version. These two passages, with their four occurrences of this word killium, are an exception to the rule, and that's Clifton's writing. In this, in Clifton's later paper, In the one-page edition, he clarified what he meant here, and he said, These two passages, with their four occurrences, are an exception to the rule concerning seeds, rather than seed. Now, I may not agree with the wording of his clarification, but I can elaborate, since I am certain I know what Clifton meant by it. Everywhere else, the word seed in the King James Version 
is from the Hebrew word zerah. And although the form, the grammatical form, is usually singular, it refers to a collection of one type of seed. If it is plural, it refers to multiple types of seed. However, here, in these two passages, the word is not zerah, but kileum, a dual form of another noun, kela. And Clifton is asserting that it describes a particular combination of two seeds, which is exactly the inference that the word or the implication that the use of the word creates. I will address that assertion later on in his paper. I will now quote these two verses from Esword, returning to Clifton. With words for Strong's number 3610 underlined with, along with each of the four King James Version renderings, Clifton had taken to using this Esword program and displaying the Strong's number after the words, after each word, we're not going to read the Strong's number. We'll only give the, we're not going to read the Strong's number for every word. We will only give <coughs> the Strong's number and Hebrew term for the word in question when we encounter it. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 9. Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds. Strong's number 3610. Kileum. Now, in that translation, the two words, diverse seeds, were taken from one Hebrew word, kileum. Lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. So we see a single word that the King James translators rendered as diverse seeds. The single word is a dual form noun, and I'll explain that momentarily also. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. Ye shall keep my statutes, thou shalt not let thy cattle engender or mate with a diverse kind, that's that word kileum, Strong's number 3610, thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed, that's that word kileum again, and this time the two words diverse kind were translated from the one word kilium and the two words mingled seed were also translated of the one word kilium. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee. And that word mingled is also kilium, the same word. In his later handout, Clifton noted that this would apply to man as well. In other words, you shouldn't sow your own family with diverse seed. 
He also summarized the conclusion he made concerning the definition of Strong's number 3610, or Killian, where he wrote, Hebrew number 3610 is rendered diverse seeds, diverse kind, mingled seed, and mingled, referring to those two passages. Because the word Killian does not appear again in Scripture. It only appears these four times in these two passages. Hebrew number 3610 is an interesting Hebrew word used to denote such seed. It is derived from the dual form of Hebrew number 3608, Kelah, which means a prison. It would appear that what we have here are two individual seeds with dissimilar genetics, imprisoned or locked into one capsule from which neither can escape. In other words, two of a twofold kind, imprisoned in a single person, animal, or plant. Now we shall continue back to Clifton's original paper. He says, I will repeat again that these four occurrences are the only places in Scripture where Strong's Hebrew number 3610, Kilean, is used. And from the King James Version, it is rendered once as seeds, actually diverse seeds, in Deuteronomy 22.9, and three times as diverse kind, mingled seed, and mingled at Leviticus 19.19. But the King James Version cannot always be trusted, so we will turn to the lexicons for a better understanding of the original languages, in this case, Hebrew Arabic, and Ethiopic. Sometimes when the lexicographers can't find a root word in Hebrew, they will often turn to the Arabic because of the similarity of the two languages. What is interesting, however, is that this time there is a root word in Hebrew. Kela which does appear in scripture, and it is used to describe a prison. However, Jusenius turned to Arabic and Ethiopic to get a better understanding of the word kileum, the dual form of kela. Recently, we had presented Clifton's series of papers titled Identifying the Beast of the Field. And we saw there that Adam Clark had consulted words in the Arabic language in order to better understand certain Hebrew terms relating to that topic, the beast of the field. There we explained that Arabic is closely related to Aramaic and Hebrew and can therefore give us insight into primitive word meanings used in the Hebrew Bible, for which we do not have many or even any other sources available. 
Clifton continues with Strong's Hebrew and Chaldee Dictionary, where the definition for kileim is, in the original sense of separation, two heterogeneities. In other words, seed of two different genetic lines, two different kinds or races. And then he shows that the King James Version translated the word as diverse seeds or mingled seed. And then at Strong's number 3608 and the word kele, he defines that from another word, Strong's derives it from another word found at Strong's 3607. And he defines it as a prison and asks that we compare 3610, which is Kileim, and 3628. Now, the Hebrew word Kileim, and these are my own words, the Hebrew word Kileim is the dual form of the word Kela. The dual form is a form of a noun which signifies two of something. While English only has a singular and a plural, ancient Hebrew and other languages have a single, a dual, and a plural form for nouns. Some ancient Greek nouns, such as osa, the word which means eyes, also have a dual form that has survived in the literature which indicates that Greek also had the feature, but it evidently fell out of general use in prehistoric times because only some Greek words maintain that form. I will also elaborate on this word kella a little further. In the New College Latin and English Dictionary by John C. Troutman, it is explained that in Latin, the C, the letter C, was originally hard, which explains why it was used to transliterate the Greek letter kappa or K. I would assert that the Hebrew kella is the origin of the Latin word kela, which is a chamber. As kela is a prison in Hebrew, kela, C-E-L-L-A, is a chamber in Latin. And that is the origin of our English word cell, C-E-L-L. We have already demonstrated in diverse other places that the origin of many Latin words is found in Hebrew. This is another one. Now, Clifton cites the definitions of these words as they were supplied by Jesenius, which is a little more thorough and complex than Strong's simplified lexicon. 
Actually, sometimes it's a lot more complex. Number 3610, Kaleum. Dual, meaning dual form. Two things of diverse kinds. Heterogeneous things. Properly, hetero meaning other. Other race things is what heterogeneous things means. Properly, two separations, two separated, or in other words, diverse things. And that is the meaning that Jusenius says that the Arabic equivalent bears. And he says that the Ethiopic equivalent means two of a twofold kind, the Ethiopic equivalent to the word kileum. Jusenius on 3608, which is kela or prison. Masculine, a masculine noun. With a suffix, it's alternatively spelled kela. In Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 33, it appears where it's a prison, so-called from the idea of shutting up. It's also employed in 2 Kings 25-29 and in other phrases, 2 Kings 17-4, 25-27 and in a plural in Isaiah 42-22. And Jesenius gave actually Hebrew script in there with the writing that would have been superfluous for me to try to define here. Clifton now comments, in all, the Jesenius Hebrew County lexicon of the Old Testament takes into consideration Hebrew, Arabic, Samaritan, Syriac, Phoenician. Actually, there's no difference between Phoenician and Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew. Ancient Greek. Ethiopic, Armenian, Coptic, Greek, and German. Now citing or referring to Strong's, referring to the strong numbers, referring to the two words, I'm sorry, Kaleum and Kela, seem to be a strange combination of Hebrew words. These are Clifton's words. Kaleum is rendered diverse seeds, diverse kind, mingled seed, and mingled. And Kela means a prison. It would appear that what we have being described here in these passages of Deuteronomy and Leviticus are two individual seed, Clifton purposely used the singular, with dissimilar genetics which are imprisoned or locked into one capsule or cell from which neither can escape. Later on in this paper, Clifton makes the connection between this description and, or this realization, and the description given by the apostles of angels chained in darkness. Since later on he presented a passage from Justin Motter, 
which certainly helps us to see a correlation between these two concepts. Clifton certainly realized the importance of this discovery, that this particular word was used in this particular context. It's telling us something. This isn't merely a coincidence, and Kileam isn't merely a synonym for Zerah, or the common word for seed. So Clifton says, in other words, two of a twofold kind, referring back to those definitions, from the dual form of Kela, which is Kileam, imprisoned in a single living being or plant. Now Clifton is going to offer biological descriptions of the word cell. Even if he did not express or realize the possibility that the Hebrew kela and the English word cell were indeed the same word, and we never spoke of the relation between the words, it is almost as if he knew it instinctively. So he says, to help the reader understand all of this, I will present some of the essential fundamental data related to this subject. I will first quote from the World Book Encyclopedia, Volume 3, pages 250 and 250A, as follows. Cell is the basic unit of all life. All living things, tigers, trees, mosquitoes, and men are made up of cells. Some animals and some plants consist only of one cell. Other plants and animals are made up of many cells. The body of a man has more than a million, million cells. That would be like trillions, probably. Most cells are so small that they can be seen only under a microscope. It would take about 40,000 of your blood cells to fill the space of this letter O, as it appears on paper, but of course type sizes vary. It takes more than a million cells to make up one square inch of your skin. Some one-celled plants and animals lead independent lives. Others live in loosely organized groups. In plants and animals made up of many cells, the cells are specialists with particular jobs to do. Uh, <coughs> I'm sorry. As you read these words, for example, Nerve cells in your eyes are carrying messages of what you are reading to your brain. Muscle cells attached to your eyeballs are moving your eyes across the page. Nerve cells, muscle cells, and other specialized cells group together to form tissues, such as nerve tissue or muscle tissue. Different kinds of tissues form organs, such as the eyes, heart, and lungs. All the specialized cells together form you, or a giraffe, a daisy, or a bluebird. 
Of course, this is the words of the encyclopedia authors. Almost all cells have some things in common. Whether they are specialized cells or one cell plants and animals, a cell is alive, as alive as you are. It breathes, takes in food, and gets rid of wastes. It grows and reproduces, creates its own kind, and in time, it dies. A thin covering encloses each cell. Within the covering is a fluid that looks like jelly. This fluid is called cytoplasm. It contains many tiny structures. Each has a job to do, such as producing energy. Near the center of the cell is the nucleus, the cell's control point. The nucleus contains a master plan that controls almost everything the cell does. The entire living substance that makes up the cell is often called protoplasm. Just as all living things are made up of cells, every new cell is produced by a cell. Most cells reproduce by dividing, so that there are two cells where there was once one. When a cell divides, each of the two new cells gets a copy of that master plan. The master plan is a chemical substance called DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. All DNA whether it comes from a human cell, an animal cell, or a plant cell, looks much alike and has about the same chemical composition. But DNA has a chemical code that makes every living thing different from all other living things. This code makes a dog different from a fish, a zebra different from a rose, and a willow different from a wasp. It makes you different from every other person on Earth. Now in response, Clifton notes that while the World Book Encyclopedia did well on the subject of the cell, they completely destroy their credibility on the subject of heredity by inserting vain propaganda, promoting their unproved hypothesis of evolution, which is now found in almost all available data. So now he continues under the subtitle, The Satanic Lie That Environment Influences One's Heredity. I will now quote and underline a portion from the World Book Encyclopedia on Heredity, where they deliberately interwove the lie of evolution in their otherwise appropriate data in volume 9 on page 192. Heredity is the passing on of characteristics from parents to offspring. All living things, human beings, plants, and animals pass on traits from one generation to the next. Nearly all forms of life are made up of vast numbers of tiny cells, units of living matter. For example, a person's body contains about a hundred trillion, a hundred million, million cells. Each person begins life as a single cell. However, this cell comes from the joining 
of a tiny egg cell of the person's mother with an even tinier sperm cell from his father. Egg and sperm join in a process called fertilization. A fertilized egg contains a set of instructions on how the egg should grow. These instructions differ from one life form to another. For this reason, a human egg grows into a human being and not into something else. Even among human beings, the instructions vary in detail. Except for identical twins, no two persons inherit instructions that are exactly alike. All children inherit traits from their parents. A boy may be blonde and blue-eyed like his mother. A girl may have curly hair like her father and a nose like her grandmother. Sometimes traits can be traced to more distant relatives. The traits that you inherited from your parents by way of the sperm and egg are called your biological inheritance. Now Clifton underlines the following sentence. Your biological inheritance alone does not make you the person you are. Your environment, surroundings, influences your inherited traits. And of course, we reject that. Ever since you were born, you have needed air to breathe, food to eat, and water to drink, as well as protection from cold weather. And now Clifton underlines the next two sentences. But environmental influences began even before you were born, when you were an egg in your mother's body. While you were developing, your mother's blood brought food and carried away waste products. An unborn child is very sensitive to substances in his mother's blood. And Clifton comments here in response that here I have underlined the horrendous lie and the misleading statements. Question, just when did the environment change the genetic code given to us by our father and mother, who in turn received it from our father, our almighty father, Yahweh? I simply cannot let pass this comment that an unborn child is very sensitive to substances in its mother's blood without addressing it. In the normal birth of a child, the mother's blood never comes into contact with the child, nor does the baby's blood come into contact with the mother. In the 1980 edition of Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 11, page 748, under prenatal circulation, it states, Circulation of blood, and this is a little tedious, but it's rather necessary. Circulation of blood in the unborn child, the fetus, called the fetal circulation, is important because it functions directly in nutrition, excretion, and respiration. During the fetal or prenatal stage, there is present a special organ, the placenta, which connects the body of the fetus with the mother. The placenta blood runs through the placental tissue 
as does the maternal blood. However, the blood of the fetus and of the mother do not mix at any time. The exchange of different substances takes place through the very thin contacting walls of the placental membranes. Through them, the fetal blood takes up oxygen and nutritive materials from the mother's blood. At the same time, it gives off waste substances, which are then eliminated through the mother's excretory system. From the placenta, the newly oxygenated blood passes through the umbilical cord, umbilical vein, towards the heart. Much of it first goes through the liver. Hence, the liver, the liver, I'm having a problem saying that, I'm sorry. The liver is quite large in proportion to other organs in this early stage of life. The blood that does not go through the liver goes through the ductus venosus to the inferior vena cava. There it mixes with blood from the lower parts of the body and the abdominal wall and the blood from the liver which comes through the hepatic vein. This mixed blood then enters the right atrium of the heart, guided by the valve of the inferior vena cava. It passes into the left atrium through the foramen ovale, which is a fetal opening in the wall that separates the two atria. There it meets a small amount of blood from the lungs that comes through the pulmonary vein. The blood then passes into the left ventricle, the atria, the ventricle being parts of the heart, and is pumped out into the aorta and distributed to the head and upper parts of the body. The blood returns from the head and upper regions through various veins into the right atrium via the superior vena cava. It then enters the right ventricle and is pumped into the pulmonary artery. However, only a small quantity goes to the lungs since they do not function until birth and need only enough blood for their nutrition. The greater part is forced through a blood vessel, the ductus arteriosus, which is present only in the fetus, directly into the aorta. The blood is then distributed to the lower limbs and abdominal organs but the greater portion of it returns to the placenta via the umbilical arteries. I know this is tedious, but it must be done. At birth, the umbilical blood vessels are severed and the placenta is cast off. Several changes then occur in the circulatory system, which culminate in the permanent circulatory system. The lungs start functioning and blood is sent to them for the carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide oxygen exchange. The foramen ovale usually ceases to function within two months after birth and closes up entirely within a year. It becomes an oval depression known as the fossa ovalis. Failure to close after birth results in a congenital heart disorder known as an atrial septal defect, which can now be corrected by the newest te techniques of heart surgery.
Immediately after respiration is established, the ductus arteriosus begins to contract and becomes obliterated. It eventually becomes the ligamentum arteriosum, which is an impervious cord without function. Failure of this to occur at the birth results in a disorder known as potency of the ductus arteriosus, which can be corrected surgically in a large percentage of cases. The umbilical vein, the ductus venosus, and the umbilical arteries usually disappear about five days after birth. With the commencement of food intake, the, the digestive tract begins to function. The digestive system then takes over the function of providing nutrients for the blood to pick up and distribute throughout the body. Wastes are eliminated through the urinary system. Now from the same encyclopedia from volume 9 on page 123. Under the title, Development of the Embryo. A human embryo in the uterus suspended in a protective sac of amniotic fluid. During its development, the embryo receives oxygen and food materials from the mother's bloodstream through the placenta, a spongy membrane composed of tissue from the embryo and the uterus. Waste products from the embryo are released into the mother's bloodstream through the same membrane. Although the blood vessels from the embryo and uterus interlock, the blood does not intermix. Again, from the same encyclopedia, from volume 9, on page 123, under the title, Extra Embryonic Membranes. The placenta develops as a specialized outgrowth of the fetal membranes. A spongy membrane, the placenta is composed of interlocking blood vessels from the embryo and the mother. It is through the placenta that nutrients, oxygen, and metabolic wastes are passed by diffusion. Normally, however, there is no actual intermingling of fetal and maternal blood because layers of cells separate the blood vessels. At birth, the placenta is discarded as the afterbirth, and its tasks are assumed by the digestive systems, lungs, and kidneys. Clifton concludes, This reference material concerning how Yahweh protects our woman, women, even though they have committed miscegenation, is vital to our cause. In other words, the concept of telegony is not true. Clifton and I each very often have addressed this belief of telegony. First, that, um, that biological materials from previous lovers or mates, which a woman had, can affect the genetic composition of subsequent offspring that she has with another maid. That's just a lie when you understand all of the biological mechanics, so to speak, 
of the process of fertilization and pregnancy, you'll understand that telegony is basically impossible. And if a fetus can absorb biological material in the bloodstream of the mother that affects its genetic structure, first, every fetus would be born deformed in all probability. But more importantly, why aren't some babies part pickle or part banana or part shrimp if the mother prefers a shrimp diet or buffalo if she eats a lot of buffalo. It's just ridiculous to imagine that things floating around the mother's bloodstream can change the genetic structure of the fetus. It's just absurd. Telegony is bullshit. It doesn't happen. The encyclopedia citations were somewhat tedious. However, Clifton wanted to show precisely how well it is that we may understand the relationship between mother and child in the womb and the process of genetic material and sustenance passing from one to the other. This understanding rules out the possibility that telegony actually occurs and also that genetic traits are influenced by external sources. Now Clifton changes the subject and he cites Justin Motter, a Christian apologist who lived and wrote until he suffered death for his faith at the hands of the Romans sometime around 165 A.D. Only some of Justin's writings survived to us, most notably his dialogue with Trifo and two of his apologies. Clifton says, from the anti, or I'm sorry, from the anti-Nicene fathers, not people against the, the Nicene fathers, but people who existed before the Council of Nicaea, who wrote before the Council of Nicaea, from the anti-Nicene fathers. I'm sorry. I had this cheap Logitech headset I'm struggling with. From the anti-Nicene fathers, volume one, chapter four, Dialogue of Justin, Philosopher and Martyr, with Trifo. And Clifton says that this speaks of something similar in rather terse language. He's actually saying that it speaks of something similar to what he has presented here concerning the word meanings of Kaleum and Kella. The soul of itself cannot see God is the subtitle to this portion of dialogue, of Justin's dialogue. Tell me, however, tell me this, does the soul see God so long as it is in the body or after it has been removed from it? 
And that's Trifo speaking. And Justin replies, So long as it is in the form of a man, it is possible for it. And then a little further on, because Justin Clifton gave a really abbreviated citation from this dialogue. It's too concise. So a little further on, because Justin had talked about those who were not worthy of seeing God, Trifo asks, and what do those suffer who are judged to be unworthy of this spectacle, said he. And Justin answers, they are imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts, and this is their punishment. And Clifton emphasizes that by underlining it. In this response to Justin's assertion, Clifton says, See my angels that sinned chained in darkness, part one. Referring to another of his essays. It would appear that the angels that sinned are genetically mixed half and half with animal kind or kinds. Until we comprehend that there is no record that Yahweh created the non-white races or the non-Adamic races, we are naively doomed to adopt dangerous premises. In order to learn more about Justin Martyr and Trifo, I will quote from A History of the Christian Church by Williston Walker under the topic, The Apologists. These, cha- these charges, quoting Walker, these charges against Christians and the hostile attitude of the Roman government aroused a number of literary defenders who are known as the apologists. Their appearance shows that Christianity was making some conquest of the more intellectual elements of society. Their appeal is distinctly to intelligence. Of these apologists, the first was Quadratus, probably of Athens, who about 125, 125 AD, presented a defense of Christianity, now preserved only in fragments to the emperor Hadrian. Aristides, an Athenian Christian philosopher, made a similar appeal about 140 to Antoninus Pius. Justin wrote the most famous of these defenses, probably in Rome, about 153. His disciple, Tadian, who combined the four Gospels into his famous Diatessaron, also belonged to the apologists. With them are reckoned to be Melito, the Bishop of Sardis, who wrote between 169 and 180, and Athenagoras, of whom little is known personally, whose defense, which survives, was made about the year 177. 
Here also belongs the epistle to Diognetus, often record among the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. There is no evidence that any of these apologists greatly influenced heathen opinion, or that their appeal was seriously considered by the rulers whom it was their desire to persuade. Their work was deservedly valued in Christian circles. However, and undoubtedly strengthened, Christian conviction of the nobility of the cause so earnestly defended. Several of the apologists were from the ranks of the philosophers, and their philosophical interpretation aided in the development of theology. The most significant was Justin, and he may as well stand as typical of the whole movement. Justin Martyr, Justin, called the Martyr, from his heroic witness unto death in Rome, under the prefect Rusticus, about 165, was born in Shechem, in the ancient Samaria, of heathen ancestry. In other words, he wasn't a circumcised Judean. He lived for a time, at least, in Ephesus, and it was in its vicinity, probably, that the conversion of which he gives a vivid account took place. An eager student of philosophy, he accepted successively Stoicism, Aristotelianism, Pythagoreanism, and Platonism. While a Platonist, his attention was directed to the Hebrew prophets, men more ancient than all those who are esteemed philosophers. Theirs is the oldest and truest explanation of the beginning and end of things, and of those matters which the philosopher ought to know. Since they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they glorified the Creator, the God and Father of all things, and proclaimed His Son, the Christ. And of course, the author seems to be following Justin's own writing in that description. By his newly acquired conviction of the truth and their ancient prophetic message, Justin says, Straight away a flame was kindled in my soul, and a love of the prophets and of those men who are friends of Christ. I found this philosophy alone to be safe and profitable. These quotations show the character of Justin's religious experience. It was not a profound and mystical union with the risen Lord, as with Paul. It was not a sense of forgiveness of sin. It was a conviction that in Christianity is the oldest, truest, and most divine of philosophies. Justin continued to look upon himself as a philosopher. He made his home in Rome, and there wrote about 153, his apology, addressed to the emperor Antoninus Pius and that sovereign's adopted sons, defending Christianity from governmental antagonism and heathen criticisms. A little later, perhaps on a visit to Ephesus, he composed his Dialogue with Trifo, similarly presenting the Christian case 
against Jewish objections. A second sojourn in Rome brought him to a martyr's death. Both Clifton and I have quoted at length from the apologies of Justin Martyr and also from the later apologists, men not mentioned here, Tertullian and Minutius Felix. But there were many others. An apology from the original Greek meaning of the term is a defense. These men wrote intellectual defenses of Christianity. While we have not always agreed with them, the apologies are valuable for gaining insight into what early Christians thought of Christianity and of the Hebrew scriptures and for their contributions to our historical understanding of the period period of Christianity under the persecutions. Justin Martyr was not perfect in that he maintained a lot of baggage from his past as a student of various Greek philosophies, Stoicism, Pythagoreanism, especially Platonism. Elements of the Greek philosophies clearly affected his Christian beliefs and perspectives. However, where Justin said that souls which are in the form of man can see God, and souls which cannot see God were punished because they are imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts, and therefore must have been of mixed race. That is not a Greek perspective, but it is found in the ancient and apocryphal Hebrew literature. As we have seen here, Justin was a Samaritan born in Shechem, and we have also explained in our recent commentaries on the Gospel of John, in relation to John chapter 4, that at least many of the people of Shechem were remnant Israelites. So it is quite plausible that Justin was familiar with apocryphal Hebrew literature, as well as the Old Testament and the meanings of Hebrew words, and derived his Christian perspective, at least in part, from that. Continuing with Clifton. From the work, Who's Who in Christian History? We will examine a short excerpt. The dialogue was a discussion with a Jewish rabbi, possibly the historical Rabbi Tarfan, about the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. At Justin's time, whether, and these are Clifton's words, this is Clifton's response, at Justin's time, whether Trifo was an Edomite or an Israelite cannot be determined, but it is quite evident that he was steeped in Judaism. And I must add that we would only know of a Rabbi Tarfan from the Talmud. Nevertheless, both men were highly educated and acquainted with the writings of the Old Testament and grasped the meaning of the Hebrew word kileum, 
being two dissimilar seeds, permanently imprisoned in the body of a beast and the offspring thereof. And I would say that Parfan or Trifo, Typho, Trifo, 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 it should probably be Trifo in Justin's apology. Trifo may not have understood that, but Justin certainly did. Clifton says, I hope the reader now sees the difference between Kileum and Zerah. So Zerah is seed, and the word Kileum was used in the scriptures to describe hybrids, two different types of kind, which are locked together in the same cell as if in a prison. The angels that sinned had committed fornication, the going after of strange flesh, as the Apostle Jude had described it, and therefore they were chained in darkness until the judgment of the great day, where it is inevitable that they shall all be cast into the lake of fire. So Justin Martyr also described their existence as mongrels, being imprisoned in the bodies of beasts as their punishment. Jude called them twice dead, as they have not the spirit of Yahweh from through which there is resurrection, which Paul described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Peter described them as evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. Yahweh created nothing made to be taken and destroyed. He created everything which he created had a purpose. This was the conclusion of Clifton's original essay. And at this point, we will present the balance of his later one-page handout on this same topic under a similar title. As neither paper seems complete until we put them both together. This immediately follows the summary of Clifton's conclusion on the definition of the word kileum, which we have already provided. So we will not repeat that here. As he proceeds, Clifton takes it for granted that his reader is familiar with the Christian identity of our European peoples as the actual descendants of the Israelites. He says, the pure genetic white Israelites, now known as white Caucasians, were given specific admonishment not to race mix with non-whites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, thusly. When Yahweh, thy Almighty, shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites, and the Amorites and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations, greater and mightier than thou. And when Yahweh thy Almighty shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them 
and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. This same reprimand is repeated, Clifton says, in Exodus chapter 34. Numbers 25, Joshua chapter 23, Judges chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 11, Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 13, and 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, under the subtitle, A Racial Plan for the 20th Century, Clifton writes, The following declaration of intent was given in 1912 by a British top-level communist theoretician, Israel Cohen, as recorded in the booklet, Who's Who in the World Zenist Conspiracy by James Combs, that was published in 1978. You can still get copies on Amazon.com. On page 40, This is James Combs, evidently citing Israel Cohen. The race-mixing program. We must realize that our party's most powerful weapon is racial tension. Our party, meaning the progressive Jew. In America, we aim for subtle victory while inflaming the Negro minority against the whites. We will endeavor to instill in the whites a guilt complex for their exploitation of the Negroes. We will aid the Negroes to rise in prominence in every walk of life, in the professions and in the world of sports and entertainment. With this prestige, the Negro will be able to intermarry and with whites and begin a process which will deliver America to our cause. And of course, that's clearly the intention of Jews in general these last hundred years. So there should be no doubt that this citation reflects an event which is absolutely true. Clifton continues... In Myron C. Fagan's booklet, UN is Spawn of the Illuminati, published in October-November 1966, he elaborates somewhat more in-depth concerning this matter on page 16. Around 1910, one Israel Zangwill wrote a play which he called The Melting Pod. The central figure in the play was a very young Jewish boy, who ostensibly was a violinist of wonderful talent. According to the plot in the play, certain people were eager to reveal his great talents to the world, and they tried to lease the Carnegie Music Hall for a concert, but the management of the Carnegie refused, ostensibly because the boy was a Jew. However, very great pressures were brought to bear on the management, and they consented to the engagement. Then, and this was still part of the play, 
it was discovered that the young violinist insisted upon a Negro pianist being his accompaniment, accompanist. Again, the management exploded. They had a rigid rule against Negroes performing in their music hall. But again, tremendous pressure was brought to bear on them, and they finally surrendered. Note, Israel Zangwill wrote a play and book entitled The Melting Pod, and both are a lie and advance Satan's agenda from the pits of hell. And of course, that was Clifton's note. Myron Fagan himself was a Jew. And really told us nothing new. So we should be careful of quoting him. However, everything Fagan said concerning Israel Zangwill and his play The Melting Pot can certainly be corroborated in other sources. Now Clifton turns to something which seems to have vexed him in his own youth, as he was born in 1927, and these movies were popular when he was growing up. He says, Another case in point was the very beautiful child prodigy, Shirley Temple, whom the Hollywood Edomite Jews used to break the race barrier. Shirley was the granddaughter of Gertrude Amelia Krieger and George Francis Temple. Her father had English, Dutch, and German ancestry. Her mother had German and Irish ancestry, all of pure white Caucasian European heritage. We read at the website questia.com. Bo Jangles salutes tap dancer who broke race barriers. History resonates with images of the smiling tap dancer in blackface. Yet few know the price black performers paid to both perpetuate and ultimately end these Uncle Tom stereotypes. Showtime launches its February Black History Month with Bojangles, a movie about the man most new as Shirley Temple's tap-dancing partner, Bill Bojangles Robinson. And here I must note, in all fairness, that the popular 1968 folk song, Mr. Bojangles, by Jerry Jeff Walker, was actually inspired by an apparently white street performer whom Walker had met in a jail in New Orleans. And it has nothing to do with this Negro. But evidently, many street dancers use the name Bojangles after Robinson, the Negro actor and dancer of the 1920s and 30s, had become popular. And many white street entertainers wore blackface as part of their act. Evidently, Negroes were thought to be more entertaining back then as well. The Jew, Al Jolson, is a famous example. The jazz singer, he wore blackface. Jolson was a New York Jew. 
Clifton continues with another source. We read again in the website of the New York Post. This is a 2014 article, I believe, but Clifton definitely first wrote this paper in 2012. The one-page handout, which we're quoting now, I don't know when that was written, but it was quite a bit later. She broke down race barriers. At a time when the South was segregated, Jim Crow was in effect, and white audiences reacted with revulsion at any suggestion of too much friendliness between blacks and whites. Temple is believed to have been likely the first white actress ever depicted holding hands with a black man on screen. The disarming innocence of her famous stairway dance with Bill Bojangles Robinson in the 1935 film The Little Colonel was something of a breakthrough. This is the New York Post, of course. Now Clifton aptly responds to the Shirley Temple phenomenon. Disarming innocence? Hell no! Disarming subterfuge. It is nothing short of child molestation to take advantage of a pretty, white, innocent young girl like Shirley Temple to bring forth the grievous, unforgivable sin of miscegenation on a grandiose scale. While all of this is happening, we as a people are claiming these Edomites, meaning the so-called, the modern so-called Jews, are God's chosen people, while in fact they are related to the family of the Edomite Herod the Great. It is beyond the scope of this short essay to point out the multi-thousands of instances on par with Shirley Temple being utilized for evil. In other words, since their success with Shirley Temple, the Jews of Hollywood had been repeating the same recipe over and over and over. Clifton may not have elaborated at length, but quoting that passage from Justin Motter and bringing to light the meaning of the word kileim as it was used in scripture, he certainly did intend to convey the idea that people of mixed race actually represent the seed of our Adamic race locked in a prison from which it can never escape. Families accepting such race mixing are defiled forever in that very manner. Mixing your race with that of another, you too, through your descendants, become an angel chained in darkness, reserved unto the judgment of the great day, at which all of your bastard progeny are tossed into the lake of fire. There's no escape from that from that fate and that destiny. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.
Somebody reminded me that Monday is a day set aside to honor a certain nigger. Mine, you know it. But I show it. 